Hey, everybody. Pete the Planner here. I'm not dead. See, you thought I was dead. You're like, where's Pete? Is he dead? No, I'm not dead. I'm like right here. I wouldn't be dead. Because that... Anyway, I'm going to be releasing a ton of episodes over the next few days. Things that we've been putting in the can and that we just have not put up. All leading to Friday the 15th. February 15th. My interview with presidential candidate Pete Buttigieg. Uh, he is the mayor of South Bend, Indiana, and here's why he's going to be on the show. I am obsessed with uh, our government leaders' understanding, or lack thereof, of the personal financial lives of, well, you and me. So Mayor Pete is going to be on the Pete the Planner Show, and we are going to talk about uh, the financial lives of you and me, like what people really deal with. And I want to get an understanding, does this presidential candidate for president of the United States really understand our lives? Until then, enjoy the back episodes. There's some great ones coming to you in the next few days. I'm so sorry. I've missed you so much. Oh, this is going to be a good one. You're listening to Pete the Planner. This week on the Pete the Planner Show, we answer your money questions because that's how the show works. I, of course, am Pete the Planner. You can email me, askpete at petetheplanner.com. That's askpete at petetheplanner.com. You can find me on Twitter at Pete the Planner. But let's get started. Uh, as you know, on this show, all we do is answer your money questions. See, the goal of this show is not for you to be like, oh, maybe I should call the guy on Monday and we can talk about my portfolio. No, no I don't want to do that. I don't want to talk about your portfolio on Monday. I want to talk about your financial life right now. That is the basis of our relationship. You, me, together, right now, working through some stuff, answering your questions, and you're thinking, oh, I didn't answer your question. Ask a question. I'm just listening. Well, it's your fault. Email me, askpete at petetheplanner.com, and I'll answer your question. That's how it works. This week, uh, we've got two questions we're answering, and then I want to talk to you about the government shutdown. And again, you're thinking, oh, I don't, I don't want to hear this gentleman's thoughts on the government shutdown. I don't care. It's my show. I'm going to talk about the personal financial ramifications of the government shutdown for those federal employees that just aren't getting paid. So we're going to talk about that. Uh, I happen to be informed on that topic, so hopefully that'll be a good use of both of our times. But first, we dip into the Ask Pete at PeteThePlanner.com mailbag to uh, go through a couple questions. The first question of the day is from a guy named Ken, and it says, Hi, Pete. Hello, Ken. I have credit card debt of $5,300 between two cards, but I have $6,000 of student loan money in an account earning 1% interest. More loan money, roughly $10,000, is on the way next semester. I'm working and bringing home $1,000 a month, which takes care of rent, living expenses, and the four semesters it takes to get my master's in elementary education. Do I use the money to pay down the credit card debt, or uh, do I pay it off with my income? Or do I leave the money in the account and add to it and earn some money while trying to pay as I go for my remaining semesters and send the loan money back? I appreciate an impartial ear on the subject. Please and Thank you, Ken. All right, so uh, if you fell asleep when I was asking that question, I don't, why did that, it's a good question, but when I just read it, I put myself to sleep. It was really boring, and I apologize. I will do better. Here, here's the, the basis of, of Ken's question. He's got $5,300 in credit card debt. 
he has $6,000 of student loan money just sitting in his checking account because he had something called the student loan refund. And, and uh, if you don't know what that is, basically when you apply for student loan money, you get approved. The student loan money goes to pay the institution their tuition money. And whatever excess student loan money is available and that was approved for you then comes to you in the form of a refund. So you re- the, the tough part about this is you hear, oh, a refund. It's like a tax refund. It's my money to do what I want with. No, that's stone cold, raw student loan money. That's not good. You don't want it. It's hot potato. You want to give it back. So first off, before we even begin to answer this question, because I, I don't know if you're going to leave your car or what you're doing and never come back to this. I'll tell you right now, I'm not burying the lead. This is not clickbait. Return student loan refund money immediately. Do not pass go. Do not collect $6,000. Give it back. And so what Ken didn't do is Ken did not return the $6,000 in student loan money. And on top of that, he's got another $10,000 of student loan refund money on the way next semester for a total of $16,000. Got $5,300 in credit card debt. And he says, look, I'm getting 1% on my money. Why don't I just earn some interest on this money and then pay it back? Because that way I got free money and uh, I've gotten over on the student loan people. (sighs) Right? I mean, that's what Ken's thinking. Here's the issue. And it is a major issue. And I actually wrote about this in my column this week. And so I will... I'm going to read from my column to you here on the radio now. Wow. I don't know if that's narcissistic, lazy, or all of the above. Uh, So I decided to, since he's studying elementary education, getting his master's in elementary education, I decided to uh, answer his question in the form of a good good old-fashioned story problem. So here we go. Ken leaves Boston for New York City at 2 p.m. in a car traveling 60 miles per hour. (laughs) Ken has borrowed $16,000, which is earning 1% interest, netting him $160 per year. But what Ken doesn't know is that he's being charged $1,216 per year in interest on the $16,000 of student loan debt. How mad will Ken be when he arrives in New York at 6 p.m. deeper in debt than he ever imagined? See, uh, I was being cute there, but here's the thing. Our boy Ken doesn't understand how student loans work. Sure, he doesn't have to make payments right now. He doesn't have to. He's probably got what are called grad plus loans, um, which means he does not have to make payment uh, while he's in school when he's considered at least a half-time student. And for six months after he stops being a half-time student, he does not have to make payments. Some people misconstrue that fact as the interest isn't ticking. No, 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 no. The interest is ticking. And what happens is that interest eventually capitalizes back into the loan. That means what was once interest money then becomes um, loan principal. So he thinks he's earning money at 1% interest on this loan money, which, which he is. However, what he does not realize is that he's paying 7.6% in interest, or he's being charged 7.6% in interest. He's just not being forced to make the payments right now. So he is going backwards, and he does not 
realize it. Now, as you, oh, by the way, Ken, if you're listening, I'm talking to you. It's okay. You're not the first person in the world to think they're getting over on a financial institution only to find out that you're, you didn't read how this works. I'm not beating up on you. I've done it too. Like You're just in a long line of dummies, and I'm at the front of the line that have done this. We had uh, a couple weeks ago Chad Force on the show, one of my uh, one of my guys that works here with us, uh, and knows a lot about banking. Worked in banking for a long time. What we learned from him is that a lot of people think they're getting over on credit card points and rewards and cash back and all that stuff, but the reality is what they end up doing is spending more money than they would normally spend, and then when they're given this benefit of cash back and this that and the other. Instead of maybe just taking the cash back and paying off debt or, or saving the money, we'll just go buy like a George Foreman grill or <laughs> some Outback steak gift cards. You know, they, they, they do weird things, which then creates a new consumer habit. It is incredibly difficult to get over on a financial institution to say, oh, you're going to give me free money. I'm going to get 1% on it and then put it to you and just pay it back. No. Ken, 7.6% interest is what you're being charged all the while you think you're winning by earning 1%. So here's what we need to make sure you do. Not only do you immediately pay back the student loan money, the 6000 and the 10000 but you need to begin to get put together a plan with your current income to get out of the credit card debt without balance sheet transfers. I don't want you to take other debt to pay off this debt. Use your income. I know you're living lean because you're a grad student, and you already told us uh, here in this email that you, you're you only living on a 1000 bucks a month. All right, fine. You figure out a way to create an emergency fund because the whole reason you have $5,300 in credit card debt is because you didn't have an emergency fund. And then pay off your credit card debt with that money you freed up in your budget to do it. Don't take out any more student loan money than you have to, and by God, always repay immediately, return the refund check. Student loan refund check sounds like a positive thing. You're listening to this right now. You're like, oh, a refund. No, give it back. It is a hot potato. It is a trick. They should change the name of it because it doesn't make sense. Coming up after the break, a life insurance question. This is a good one. This is what we're doing this week. This is the Pete the Planner Show, and I'm Pete the Planner. Back on the Pete the Planner show. I'm Pete the Planner. How's it going? Answering your money questions, email me, askpete at petetheplanner.com. Ask Pete at petetheplanner.com. I may answer your question in an email, maybe here on these uh, these airwaves, maybe in the newspaper, maybe one of the people I work with will answer your email. Here's the best way to think about it. There's something going on in your life right now that if that question is answered, if you have uh, some sort of resolution to that challenge, the rest of your financial life begins to free up. You can move on and live a peaceful existence. Whatever that one little thing is, that's the thing you put in a note to ask Pete at PeteThePlanner.com, and I will do my best to address it. Uh, next question, interesting one. Interesting one, it's from a retired cop. How do I know this? Because in the subject line, I said something to the effect of, I'm a retired cop. I don't know. 
Here's a question. Uh, Dear Pete, I have always been good with money, and my wife of 50 years and I have zero debt. Taxes on our home are about $8,000 a year. We have about uh, $700,000 in savings and are both 70 years old. Our home, by the way, let me, let me just say, that's two sentences, three sentences. You just give me, we know a lot about this dude, right? He's a cop, got no debt, has really expensive property taxes, um, has $700,000 in assets. He's married 50 years. He's 70, 70 years old. Uh, their home is worth $450,000. Man, those are some expensive property taxes, Kenny. So our last email is from a guy named Kent, and this guy is Kenny. Go figure. I'm 10 years into a 20-year term life insurance policy of $300,000, which costs us $3,600 a year. Our pensions and Social Security are about $66,000 annually. Would it be a poor choice to drop our life insurance policy? Thanks much, Kenny. Uh, Life insurance. There's life insurance, man. Here's the thing. I have a lot of life insurance, and and it really does allow me to sleep at night, as cliche as that is. I would have a hard time falling asleep at night, as high-strung as I am, if uh, I didn't have my family protected in the event of my untimely death. Again, how cliche is that to think, I couldn't sleep well at night if I didn't have life insurance? It's true, though. I couldn't. Sometimes I don't sleep well at night if the colds don't play well. It's not a far stretch for me to say that uh, I might not sleep well, that if I die, my family is destitute because my income dies with me. Life insurance is a really important thing, but here's here's, here's an equally important thing and an an equally honest thing. I hate buying life insurance. I hate it. I hate making the premium payment. The best thing you ever can think about is that you won't need it anymore. Like when your kids get out of the house to some level, then you need less life insurance. This man is 70 years old. He and his wife are both retired. They've got a a fine income. They have no debt. They have $700,000 to his name. Ah, to his name. Boy, that seemed Freudian, didn't it? To their name. It's not just Kenny's money. It's Mrs. Kenny's money, too. Shame on ye. I don't know. So the real question here is, does Kenny still need life insurance? I think at any point in time, when you start thinking about life insurance, the question is, do I need it? And how much do I need? So let's examine. But to examine, to begin answer Kenny's question, we have to dig deep into his email to find a really odd part of the email. Well, it's, a, it's a normal part of the email, but it creates some odd questions. The section, we have about $700,000 in savings and are both 70 years old. If you have any financial planning background whatsoever, two major things stick out to you. First off, uh, when someone says they have $700,000 in savings, that doesn't necessarily mean that they have $700,000 in a savings account. It's just not how people talk, right? That's That's not necessarily what they have. They may have $700,000 in IRAs or in retirement accounts, but people just colloquially, I can't say that word, I shouldn't try, uh, they call investments savings, and they call savings investments. They're just interchangeable. So that is to say, 
I don't know whether Kenny has $700,000 in just a boring savings account, whether he has it buried in his backyard, or he has IRAs with $700,000. However, based on what I think, I think at least some of that money is in IRAs or qualified money. Okay, which brings me to the other important part of the sentence I just read you. He says he and his wife are both 70 years old. Well, when you're 70 and a half years old, you have to begin to take something called a required minimum distribution or an RMD. So right now, I don't know how old you are listening to this show. I just assume you're just you're you're good looking. That's all that's the only assumption I make about you and you have good taste in radio. Um, but when you reach 70 and a half and you have a 401k or an IRA or any traditional qualified vehicle, meaning not Roth, you are forced, forced to make withdrawals from that account so that Uncle Sam can get the tax revenue. Because those accounts are accounts that you've never paid taxes on before, right? When you put the money in, remember, you got to deduct the contribution from your taxes in the year that you made the contribution. And you'd never had to pay tax on the growth because it was in a qualified account. So the only way Uncle Sam makes any revenue on that what was originally your income is if you make it income again by taking a distribution. That works out in the first year of distribution to about 4% or so. You need to take about 4%-ish out uh, when you're 70 and a half out of your vehicle. So that, I think, I'm going to assume with Kenny's email here, and, and it's my choice, I can go whatever direction I want to go with this, but I think about 600000 of his $700,000 are going to be in qualified vehicles. It's just a guess. I've seen a thing or two. So that's to say he's going to have, what, $22,000 of additional income in the next 12 months that he previously didn't have, taking his annual income from 66000 to 88000 and so he can easily afford the $3,600 term life insurance premium that he's consider, considering whether or not he should buy. The question really is about affordability, but it, to me, the answer isn't about affordability. The answer is, does he really need the coverage? I would argue that to insure yourself from age 70 to 80 in this particular situation is important for a couple reasons and a couple reasons alone. Number one, he has a pension. He mentioned that. But it's important to understand what his survivor benefits are on that pension. If he chose a life only, which means that if when he dies, so does the pension, then his wife's probably going to need some more income. If he chose a survivor benefit in which she gets the same amount he gets when he's dead, then it's unlikely he'll need as much life insurance. I don't know their health situation, but oftentimes when someone passes away, there are what we call final expenses or final medical expenses that can be in the tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars in some circumstances. And of course, there's his desire or lack thereof to create generational wealth, to leave money to a family member or friend or some other entity. And so if those things exist, then he needs to continue the life insurance. If the pension stays the same when he dies, he doesn't want to leave money to anybody, he's not really concerned about final expenses, then I don't think he necessarily needs to cons uh, continue the $300,000 policy. Although, what I definitely recommend to Kenny is to con uh, consider 
converting a portion of this term policy into a permanent policy because I believe he, if anything, has a permanent life insurance need, not a temporary 10-year uh, need for life insurance. So I think he should convert to something like a $50,000 policy, and the premium will be about the same, uh, honestly, if he can qualify from a health perspective. And he's got plenty of income because of RMDs. If you want to ask me a question, do so. Ask Pete at PeteThePlanner.com. Coming up after the break, my very pointed thoughts about the shutdown and how it affects people. I'm Pete the Planner. Back on the Pete the Planner show, or the Ask Pete, I don't know what we call a show. There was a one point, I st- my radio show started, oh, I don't know, 11, 12 years ago, and it was called Skills to Pay the Bills. I, I'm slightly embarrassed by that, but no one cares. Uh, anyway, Pete the Planner here, hello. Good day to you. Um, so I want to talk about the government shutdown, but I want to talk about it from the perspective of the people affected from a personal finance standpoint, government employees who are not being paid but are, are forced to work or are not being paid and don't have to work. I want to talk about their lives. And, and I know my next sentence it will fall on deaf ears because that's where we're at. I, this is not political to me, <laughs> right? I, I, like You and I may completely disagree with the need for uh, a wall or something in uh, Texas and the, or the border. You and I might disagree on that. And that's fine. That, that's good, actually. It's nice to have diverse thought. Hopefully, though, what, what I want to try to hit on in this conversation, though, is one-sided conversation, is how we can still show empathy for the people affected by the current shutdown. Uh, so, so as you probably know, there are people not working and not getting paid. Now, um, what we do know by a recent vote of Congress that when the government shutdown is over, the people who have not been paid will be paid back pay. Okay, so I'm going to illustrate this just in case you don't understand it. Let's say you make $3,000 in a month, you don't work for a month, you're currently not getting paid for a month because the government is not open, Uh, your department is not open. So therefore, for this month, you don't get the $3,000 that you usually need to live and survive and sustain yourself. But at at the end of all this, that money will be paid to you in arrears. And yes, I just wanted to say in arrears. So what I want to talk about, though, is what that really means to the average person. So um, my, my organization, Your Money Line, has, has offered, and I'm putting it out here to you, we will help any federal government employee affected by the shutdown in terms of their income for free. There, there's no catch. Um, we f- just firmly believe that uh, in the midst of this shutdown, when the government is not there to provide income for the people who have earned it, we think fellow citizens should and need to step up and do the best they can to take care of people. Um, I'm inspired to do this by a good friend of mine who's a restaurateur in central Indiana who is feeding uh, folks who are affected by the, the, the shutdown because they don't have money to buy food. 
And so he is feeding them for free at his uh, restaurant. So I, I'm inspired by that. So we are uh, offering to help anyone for free, no strings attached. Just email me, ask Pete at PeteThePlanner.com, and I'll get you hooked up with someone from your money line here, uh, and, and we'll help you through it. But he, here's the bigger point. It's easy to say things like, oh, it's fine, they're going to get their back pay. And it's easy to say things like, well, that's why you should have an emergency fund. But the hard thing to do, but the important thing to do, is to have some empathy. Like, just because you might be able to survive a one-month, two-month, three-month lack of income doesn't mean that someone else can. And it also doesn't mean that the people who can't are bad people. And I feel like as we, you know, there's this tribalism going on in our country right now where we just want to be a part of a group and being a part of a group means you're excluding another group. And there's some financial tribalism that comes into that and some classism where we say, well, my family's protected. <laughs> being this group of people who are responsible and the people that don't have an emergency fund, that's their own fault. Like that's a thing. And it happened on Twitter just this week because as I made the offer to have people from our organization who really there are no better people to fix financial issues than the people that work for me. And I am proud to say that. Um, I have nothing to do with it. <laughs> I'm just lucky to work with some amazing people who can fix stuff. We're offering to help people for free. So the very first thing we put on Twitter, one of the first thing a person in the financial industry says, be sure to coach them on the importance of an emergency fund. Yeah, I know. And I know, and we'll probably get to that. But you have to understand what it would be like. And so what I'm asking you to do right now, I'm asking you to imagine 30 days without your income and you have no other means to secure money. Uh, so what I'm saying is, let's say you have an emergency fund right now. I'm asking you to act like you don't because that's reality. The way you help people who don't have resources isn't to say, I have resources. That's not helpful. And so what upsets me about the shutdown isn't the shutdown itself. It's that people who have nothing to do with the shutdown and the politics of it all are being affected and then they're being marginalized because people can't get past their own financial tribalism. They can't get past, uh, should have money in your 401k. You should, it always starts with the, you should have money in savings. That's why you should have gold. Like, it doesn't matter that, that you're fine. That's what it is to help people. So here's what I'm asking of you. And if you've already turned off the radio or turned off the podcast or whatever, that's fine. But listen, what I want you to do right now I want you to imagine you have no other means to get money over a 30-day period. You have your regular bills. Your regular income does not come in. What do you do? How are you feeling? How are you sleeping? Right? That's the issue here. Okay, so at the end of the 30-day period, or if this 30-day period, again, that's a, that's a hypothetical 30 days. I don't know when the shutdown's going to end, and neither do you. You are going to get a big chunk of money. So how do you survive? Now, I've also seen it often suggested within the media over the last couple of weeks. Well, you just get a personal loan. 
It's not that easy. Maybe you can get a personal loan uh, as you're looking at this from you know 30,000 feet. You're saying, well, I'm a person of means. I have an emergency fund. I have assets. Someone would loan me money. That's not reality for a lot of Americans. Even people working for the federal government who have federal pensions, it, it, we see it all the time. We like to make the assumption when it comes to finances that if you can figure it out, someone else can too. And even as I say that, if you disagree with me, you're, you're fighting the urge to acknowledge what I just said, right? Because here's the thing. Just because you can figure it out doesn't mean everyone can figure it out. That is how classism exists financially in our country, right? Just because you figured it out doesn't mean it's easy to figure out or that everyone can do it. Because of systemic poverty, because when you start looking at a living wage, when you look at those issues, and if you have not experienced them and you are not experiencing them, then, then you don't understand how hard it is to get through a period of time with absolutely no income or resources. My full heart goes out to everyone affected by the crisis. My, my full heart goes out to people affected by financial challenges all the time. That's what I do for a living. But when it comes to this, uh, the government shutdown, people are in trouble. People are in trouble, especially when you look at the critical jobs that these people are being asked to do for no pay. For no pay. My wife and I were fortunate enough to return to this country about a week and a half ago from being out of the country for a little holiday. We came back through uh, border protection or customs or whatever through the airport and they give me a passport and they say, did you bring any drugs and things? And we said, no, we, we did them all there. I'm kidding, we didn't do any of the drugs. Uh, and the person was just the kindest person in the world. Truly the, the best border experience we've had in, in years of doing this. And then we walk away, we say, have a good day. And we're just thinking, that guy's not getting paid. He's doing incredibly important work and he's not getting paid. My point that I want to share with you on this is just have some empathy for those people. Don't, don't, that's why you need an emergency fund. It's not helpful. Saying that is not, that's why you shouldn't go to Starbucks. It's not helpful. Have some empathy. That's what we need. Coming up after the break, more of this on Pete the Planner. Back on the Pete the Planner show on Pete the Planner. This week's biggest waste of money of the week. I have two things for you. They're both pretty wasteful. Both pretty wasteful. As soon as we hit those two, I want to talk a little bit about money and politicians. I know. It's a political show this week. Sorry. Uh, money and politicians. I want to talk about how much do you care about the financial lives of our government officials. All right? That's what I want to know. Here we go. First biggest waste of money of the week is the Ezra Arthur straight razel and paddle strop case. Hmm? Created in collaboration with Max Sprecher, a custom straight razor whiz who makes each blade by hand in his Las Vegas studio. This razor is built to last forever. It features a full-sized eight and, you know, what is this? Eight, eight quarter hollow ground blade forged in carbon steel and handle that is just as special made from ultra high density carbon fiber uniplate which provides the appearance of wood grain but won't warp or rot over time it's robust yet balanced that's how i'm described actually 
Uh, the other day, I was like, have you met Beat the Planner? Yeah, he's robust, but balanced. With an easy grip, no, that's not true, for one of the best shaves you'll ever have. A paddle strop razor case is included, made from dense cocobolo hardwood with solid brass hardware and wrapped in calfskin leather. Each case is custom tailored to fit the Max Sprecher Signature Straight Razor and is precision machined and handcrafted in the U.S. of A. Okay, so this is a straight razor. You know, like when you're, you were a kid, you'd go to the barbershop. Wait, why would you go to the barbershop when you're a kid? Wait, stick with me. You go to the barbershop when you're a kid, and you don't have facial hair. You don't even have peach fuzz. But there's an old, older gentleman there who does, and he's laid back in the chair, and the barber has the straight razor, and I think he's got what's called the strop, I don't know, which is that leather thing, and he's just like running the blade on the leather thing. I used to get my uh, haircut at a barber shop that was across from the Indianapolis Motor Speedway when I was a kid. My dad and I would go in there, and they would constantly be using that leather strap that was attached to the chair to, to hone, I don't know, the straight razor. I didn't know what was going on. I was just a little kid. There was a gumball machine in there. That's all I cared about. Um, but anyway, th there's these straight razors that the guys had. Do you know how much this one costs? This Ezra Arthur straight razor and paddle strop case? $1,140. $1,140. Do you know where I get my razors? And again, I'm not manly enough to really grow a lot of facial hair. Dollar Shave Club. I pay a dollar for my razors. Not $1,140. That's absurd. That's a giant waste of money. But is it as big a waste of money as the Viberg sneakers? After nearly a century of setting the standard in bootmaking, Viberg has entered the sneaker game. The only sneaker made entirely in Canada. Oh, who cares? Does it smell like maple syrup? And the result of years of studying Nike and the Jordan brand, they feature a silhouette that draws inspiration from classic athletic footwear from the 1980s and 90s. Each pair is built upon a Vibram Spike RGS sole that you'd typically only find on a rugged hiking shoe. This robust foundation is not only provided uh, provides comfort, but also gives you the best traction we've ever seen in a sneaker. The upper is lined with contrasting Italian horsehide panels and supported by soft padding at the tongue and collar. A heavyweight leather insole, the same one used on their boots, and a removable leather footbed. Available in black or white, each pair is finished with custom linen laces from Italy and uses Viberg's 1003 Last. Okay, so I've just described these sneakers, but let me tell you what they look like. They look like a referee's tennis shoe, you know, like a basketball referee always wear those black shoes, but maybe the court is made of stones. So if, a, if, a, if there was a referee refing a basketball game on stones, that's what this shoe looks like. It's all black. It's got a really chunky sole. It's four $490. $490 for an ugly referee shoe. Why would you do that? And that's why it's this week's biggest waste of money. Remember, if you want to be on this show, you can't. But if you want your question answered, that I can do. Ask Pete at PeteThePlanner.com. Uh, and again, the promise I made earlier in the show, if you happen to be a federal government employee affected by the shutdown from a personal finance standpoint, 
and you just need some direction on what to do, email me, ask Pete at PeteThePlanner.com, and for free, I'll get you set up with one of our experts here, and they will take care of you. We are, we are here to serve you because you serve us, and that's the way the world works. One last note on money and politics. In the next few weeks, I'm going to be bringing you a show, hopefully, fingers crossed, that really explores uh, our government officials and politicians' relationship with our personal finances. It's a weird thing to say. Here's what I'm trying to say. Sometimes I don't think the people that we elect really understand our personal finances. Like they've never experienced the experiences that we have or they experienced it so long ago that it's hard for them to empathize with what we're dealing with. Now there's the good and the bad of this too, right? On some level, you, and I, I mean both parties, assuming we're in a two-party system. You want the people we elect to be successful enough financially and successful enough within their careers and their judgment and whatever walk of life they're in. You want them to be successful enough that you believe that some of that success and the good decision-making ability that they have can rub off on our fine nation that we all share, right? That, that's the idea. I mean, in some respect, that is why people liked Trump. They said, uh, in, in their judgment, I deem this person to be a success, and I want some of that success for our country. I mean, that, that was one of the big things for Trump. But at the same time, that's what people do uh, with, with both parties. Even look at John Kerry, which, you know, a lot of this money is family money. And you say, well, this guy's got millions and millions of dollars. I mean, some judgments, we would like him to make some judgments for us. So bet both parties do that way. But at some level, I've sort of gotten to this point. Per this is me personally, and I just question where you line up on it. You can email me, ask Pete at because we're going to explore this on the show here in a couple weeks. I'm to this point where I want someone representing me that understands my finances. I do okay. I do fine. I don't have millions and millions and millions and millions of dollars. But I want a politician that truly understands that how the decisions they make impact everyday Americans and their finances, right? Now, am, am, I, am I looking for a unicorn? Maybe. I don't know. I just know that oftentimes when you see decisions being made in Washington, you don't really feel like they understand how it impacts people, Right? And the way I feel about this, and maybe this exposes my politics, good, bad, or otherwise, I feel like it's how we take care of the people who are struggling the most that really defines us, right? I, I just, I, I don't feel like my end-all, be-all goal in life is to have as much money as I can. I feel like personally it is to make as big an impact on other people's financial lives as I can. That's why I seek representation not for uh, someone that's uber liberal that spreads out wealth. That's not what I'm interested in. But it is sensitive to the idea that people all don't have the same opportunities. That's where I'm at philosophically right now. Does that alienate you from my show? I don't know. I'd hope not. Even if we disagree, at least I don't do it with uh, vinegar, <laughs> as my dad likes to say. All right. That's it for this week's show. Get a little soapboxy this week. Sorry. Fresh back in the country. I'm just trying to learn this learn the ropes here.
Uh, if you want to email me, do it. I don't know what will happen from there. Ask Pete at PeteThePlanner.com. Please ask me your financial questions. We will do our best to answer them and to point you in the right direction. Once again, if you're a government employee affected by uh, the shutdown, let us help you. Ask Pete at PeteThePlanner.com. Sending you good vibes. Good vibes are all that's in the budget. I'm Pete the Planner, and this, this here, right here, it's my show. And then